0: Running a small business can be tough. I mean, you're not just the CEO, you're also the marketing, the finance manager and everything else in between. Technology, however, and digital tools can play a big part in taking on some of these tasks, giving you that much needed headspace to focus on running your business. But it's hard to know where to start. Which tools are right for you? How do you go about integrating them? And when is the right time to make the investment? Mastercard's Strive UK programme has been set up to make it easy for small business owners to access the support needed to digitise, whether that's incorporating accountancy tools or new digital payment methods. Through free guidance, helpful tools and personalised one-to-one mentoring, Strive is empowering small business owners across the UK to succeed. For more on how Strive UK could help your business, Visit mastercard.co.uk slash drive. OK, here's the show. My guest today is Julian Metcalf, co founder of a Manger when he was just 26. Born into a seemingly gilded world, he came from an upper class family and was educated at Harrow. But Julian, like me, also lost his mother, but he was just age seven. I don't remember it really, he once said, but I think hardship can breed empathy. Empathy is at the core of creative instinct and I believe great business and Julian channeled it to reinvent something that became a global retail sensation, the humble sandwich shop. Pret was a revelation. We were used to calf serving milky tea and doorstep white bread sandwiches and I walked into this happy, bright place where nutritious food was served by people who smiled and interacted. Stores gave leftovers to charity way before it was a thing. Pret ran a training scheme for the homeless and ex-offenders. We all know that Pret became huge and that Julian, who also founded the brilliant Itsu food chain, where he spends most of his energy now, eventually left. He said in the end getting things done the way I wanted them done became harder and harder. I was wasting so much of my energy and emotional energy dealing with that sort of corporate thing. So what exactly do I mean when I talk about creative instinct? It's often spoke of in hushed sort of reverential terms channelling the divine great works of art and that sort of thing. But I think this narrative puts many of us off allowing our instinct to flourish. We all have it And for me, it's about thinking around the existing shape of how things are done and seeing beyond something new, allowing that feeling that you have to open up and follow it. It's something that beautiful misfits do again and again, creating a new way, their way, in anything from art to sport, business to medicine. Sometimes it's something entirely unique. At others, they just reinvent what was familiar. But at their core, all beautiful misfits, in their own individual way, channel the buzzing Blooming life force of creativity. Why? Because it's our best compass. It guides us in a unique way. It's free of the external forces that often diminish us. Creative instinct is pure, it's elemental, it's a gut feeling. It is empathetic at the core. It's less about the physics of life, the right way to do things, and more about the chemistry, that subtle magic that allows us to create something better and more beautiful and fear is its greatest enemy. Fear of doing the wrong, making a mistake, being ridiculed. That is what crushes creative instinct out of all of us. So, to all you beautiful misfits out there, I say this. Trust your instinct, hone it and fly. Julian came in straight away. You asked me, why are you doing this? What's your big goal? Big question.
1: Yep. Did you get the answer? I understand your frustration. Mm. It's a question of how to channel it, I guess, into, into something which is positive and something which is com- completely understandable for, for your listeners. Mm. So together, things can change. Mm. And I really do believe in that. And thank you, because I think, what obviously, when
0: we research our guests beforehand, inviting them, and what struck me about you is that you don't often talk publicly about your life a lot. So what resonated with you enough to join me?
1: Uh, I, I don't know, just bits and pieces of watching you in the past, the way you, you just tackle things with a huge amount of common sense. And, and warmth and honesty and truth. It's kind of it's engaging. It's mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. You told me earlier, I said to you that the higher the monkey climbs the tree, the more you see of its arse. In other words, people who've built a business or run a big business, there's really not a lot to be gained by um, spending your life preaching to others but how great you are, how rich you are, how successful you are, it's so boring. Really what matters is how do you contribute and what are you doing to change the world, to be a tiny, tiny bit better place.
0: I remember this. I was filming Mary Queen of Shops and I went into this, was a fast fashion shop, but obviously you could see that the people in it were just deeply unhappy. Mm. I remember there was these girls and they were on the fitting room and they'd say, three garments only, and they were sort of slouching. You know, your energy was in their boots. And I said, why are you saying three garments only? He said, because they steal the people. And I said, gosh, isn't that just a terrible way? These are young girls coming in for their fashion. How about you just look at them with joy and do it in a different way? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to bring them into PrEP and go behind the counter of PrEP and show them how you create that energy, which was just this buzz that I loved. There was an oxygen in that business. And... Your team refused me and I rang you and you told me that story because you you thought I was going to go in and analyse and look at what made you successful. Actually, I knew there was just a magic in there. There was no way I could analyse it. It came from your creative vision and feeling what was right. Because you said that you employed.
1: um, None of that's really true because... If and when the atmosphere at pre manger was warm and truthful, it was because the manager treated their staff with real respect and warmth and decency but that's all it's really not more complicated than that no,
0: but that manager was able to feel they could do that yeah
1: th- because we as a business weren't stupid enough to stop that happening that's right, and we you weren't short term to... enough or grumpy enough or mean enough or greedy enough, primarily short term enough to uh, create an atmosphere which tried. I'm talking about, you know, the, the 90s and when it was, it was unusual. But it was clearly so, to me, very obvious and to, you know, to so many others who built Bretter
0: I remember and, I used to go in and sometimes they'd say, have that coffee for free or the salad. Yeah, of course. Go, oh, they see me on television. And then I walked into my office one day and said, oh, they're so lovely, you know. And then one of my team went, oh, no, they do that to me. Yeah. And another one, yeah, no, I have that. And I was like, that's yeah. incredible. And what it was... Was those managers used to let the team just choose? I think you gave them a certain amount of money that they'd yeah. have freedom—a freedom, an act of just kindness. Yeah.
1: yeah, kindness. No, it was probably quite clever because if you totally if you develop a good relationship with customers, they'll come back. I mean, it's really mm. very, very basic, honestly. Mm. I mean, you could buy an air ticket for four thousand pounds right now, have a terrible, terrible experience, write a nice, polite letter, and not get a reply for two months. Mm. It's ridiculous. Businesses, so many businesses, not all by any means, have completely lost touch with how to treat other human beings. It's ridiculous.
0: So, looking just at the world as we are now, and without sounding like two old cynics, which we don't want to be, because I, I don't think you are. I mean, I believe. No, no, I'm not at per- all. No, you're not at all. But what would you look at? What even the government that we're looking at now, when you talk about short term and trying to get the economic model back up, we're not looking at at all what's happening to our planet or really thinking long term how do you feel about that
1: goodness that's a big subjects uh, dealing with a planet is going to take a huge amount of energy time money and planning that is a huge huge question but clearly one a very important one politics that's another one I mean a great many people many of your listeners will be pretty fed up with the, you know why is it politicians spend most of their time squabbling like children with each other uh, meanwhile, there's so many issues which this country needs. You know, they should sit down and, and be more aligned. It's really shocking, let alone so many of the politicians who clearly have no moral compass whatsoever. But what what are we meant to do about that? The public, you know, we do our best, we vote them in, and we have to trust them. But it's irritating for so many people that they're not more reliable as human beings. I remember hearing, I think it was Brené
0: Brown doing an interview, and she was talking about vulnerability and um, all those sort of wonderful things that we want to hear about, that we want to be as individuals and free to be ourselves, which you talked about when you said about truth, honesty, which I try and strive for. Sometimes I fall desperately short, but I try. And you realised, and someone said to her, would you ever go into politics? She said, I wouldn't be able to do it because the system isn't right. I mean, the minute you tell the truth, you're you're done for, it seems, you
1: know? Well, I think a great many politicians, a great many are really good people. But it's just the minority, I think, probably create the problem.
0: But it's become the system now, though, hasn't it? It's become the way.
1: I don't think it's become the entire system, but it is in danger of becoming so, Yeah.
0: So... You, when you were younger, I, I was reading, you often used words like troublesome and a lunatic to describe yourself.
1: Did I? That sounds irritating. But maybe you felt that though. I mean, did you feel that? What was that? No, I don't think I ever felt a lunatic. I think often people who were more experienced in commerce used to think that my attitudes were probably irresponsible and weird and silly. And, you know, it takes time before you, you have the confidence to stick with what you believe in. Mm. Do you know?
0: I know, but you were twenty-six. I'm just let's get back to that because that is very early on. I mean, I feel I'm only really coming into myself when I'm sixty.
1: Yeah, like seriously,
0: how did you know that, or did you not know it? That you just followed your
1: instinct. I mean, yeah, it's it's interesting because I really had. On the whole, no idea quite what I was doing. But I had a group of people around me. My Sinclair, my partner back then, was very supportive. We hired and worked with some really quite visionary, wonderful people. I really was lucky to have had the empathy to hire around me some really talented, wonderful people uh, by working together and taking these risks. I mean, I probably pushed them to take the risks. Over and over again, I pushed them to say, come on doesn't have to be that way. Let's do it like this.
0: But I suppose I want to get to how you were able to... It doesn't have to be that way. You went to Harrow. I mean, it's mm. a public, public posho school. No two ways about it.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, your little tails and your voter. Yeah, yeah. But uh, my mother was Ukrainian, actually. So I was kind of half-half. I was kind of half-posh and half not, which is interesting.
0: Why, why, because she was Ukrainian, was it not posh?
1: Because she wasn't posh at all. She, you know, really, really wasn't posh. Quite the opposite. She was a nurse in Chertsey Hospital. Actually, she wasn't posh. We lived with her. My parents were divorced.
0: They must have divorced. Yeah, when, you when were we very were really young.
1: young. Yeah, I had a privileged background, in education. No, no question. And I met, as a result, a lot of, you know, very bright, brilliant people, and and that was good. I was very lucky to have that education, actually.
0: Can I ask you where did you go after your mother died?
1: Your mother died when you were seven. Yeah. She committed uh, we went suicide, to didn't she? Yeah. She, we went to live in London. Uh, with our father who we didn't see a lot before but the three of us went to live with him and, and we lived in London onwards.
0: Where were you in the in the run of kids?
1: I was the middle one. Of course.
0: Uh, Tell me the sort of the rundown of the family so your elder siblings were what age? So,
1: Zara's two yeah. years older than me and my brother Charlie's a year and a half younger than me and we just got on with it we got on with it.
0: I was talking to someone just this week as a chief exec of a business and he'd Said to me, You know, I lost both my parents by the time I was 12. And so I was brought up by my uncle. He said, I never told anyone. I never told anyone at school. This guy's only in his early 40s. I mean, we're our generation is just, you know, you didn't discuss anything. But the way you just said, We just got on with it. You were seven when you lost your mother. Mm. I mean,
1: do you remember any of that and what? Yeah, you... yeah, of course I do. Mm. I think it's wrong to say that you know, suffering. Uh, Hardship can be put to good use. I mean, it definitely taught me a greater level of empathy, I think. Mm. There was no question about that. For years, in the early years, it was all about working with people who, who really looked way beyond the weekly, monthly profit and loss of the company and onto something about are we really doing something together, which is good and wonderful? Are we supporting each other? Is there genuine warmth and love as you walk into this place amongst each other? Because if there is... Clearly, we were going to do it much better. It's really quite basic.
0: Well, is it so basic? I mean, it is basic on a human level, on a humane level, dare I say, a spiritual, kind, decent level of honesty, truthfulness and doing something you enjoy. And then it just grows outwards, 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 which I completely and utterly believe in. But that is not the world of business I grew up in. You did your own thing, luckily enough, early, but most of us, and still today, are not in that type of business world. There is a structure, there is a behaviour, there's a, a way of doing things that is, is fairly, and I use the word alpha, in that it's quite individualistic and there is a way of behaving. And I think your success is that you did it from this place of empathy, you talk creativity and instinct. Would you agree on that?
1: Well, creativity definitely plays its part. Yeah, mm. I was pretty determined to look around and create something which was different. Yeah,
0: I'm laughing because you went to Harrow, <laughs> and then you left and trained to be a chartered surveyor. I got asked to be a keynote speaker at the chartered surveyor group, and I cannot tell. I mean, they were all very posh. Were they white middle-aged men? Of course, I was the yeah. Only what did you say? Woman. I was talking about the stuff diversity and all the stuff that we're talking about here and that they're very kind to me and polite you yeah, know fair. and I sat on this huge table where I was the speaker and they just after the dinner I then just took the microphone and there were some really lovely people there but it was a completely different you know, conversation than I think they would have normally had. But there's a wonderful picture of me with them all. I think it's on Piccadilly, the Institute of Chartered Surveyors, and I'm sitting in the middle of them, men after men after men. And part of me feels, you know, I often talk about the feminine instinct that we've suppressed in business, which we have, and um, that all the stuff that sort of ended up in the human resources department, caring, you know, vulnerability, empathy was sort of shoved aside in the search for data logic and stuff that we could all measure. When I was with them, you could feel they wanted something different as well. So many people do, but don't know how to achieve it. They don't know how to start, yeah. yeah. So why sandwiches? How did this come up? I'd imagine most of your peers who you went to Harrow with ended up in banks or politics or law. What
1: inspired you? Where did this come from? Oh, I did. Food. It's so important. Even back then, age 20, I was became sort of obsessed by how better food could be just traveling around Europe and as a kid and going to the French markets and England the the food was really pretty awful in 1986 it was shocking and I couldn't naively I just thought it could be done better with everything the relationship and the harmony between the staff and the menu and the this type of food and how much it cost and the relationship with the customers being more efficient and uh, just everything. I, I was captivated by it. But and I stupidly believed it was possible to change it. But I had to work really very hard and with great determination for a couple of years to three, four years to make it work remotely. I mean, it was a, nearly a disaster. But I just stuck with it. And every time I had the guts to do something differently, swim upstream, as it were, it would it worked. It really worked. But did wonderful. you see
0: anything that inspired you? I remember Anita Roddick, she saw this place in the States, I can't remember what it was, that was basically her body structure. That is super really. cool.
1: No. I never saw one place. I saw hundreds, which they all inspired me. And, you know, as customers, we eat three times a day. We're professional critics. We know what we're talking about. And I kind of underestimated how difficult it was going to be to really get this food right at the right price. Really difficult and also have teams of people who cared enormously and were really proud about what they did. It was very difficult, it's not easy. And to, even today, it's what I do right now, it's where I've just come from a meeting this morning. I'm more obsessed now with making to into a place which can sell and challenge you know, affordable, healthier fast food, where for seven pounds you can get something which is good for you and delicious. That's the great opportunity. It's needed now more than ever before in history.
0: I was just looking at the fact when you first opened up um, Pratt, um, you've sold it subsequently, we'll talk about that, but you lost money in those first couple of years, didn't you? I mean, oh, considerable. Yes. What was it? How much was it?
1: I don't know. Pratt lost money for years and years and years.
0: OK, so how did you survive? How did you... Well, we
1: scraped by. We lost just enough to continue a good relationship with our bank put it that way, Okay. but the bank believed in us, we were with the same bank as we are now for 40 years or whatever it is, and they were always supportive, and the underlying business was fantastic, it's just that Sinclair and I at the time weren't driven by just the profitability of the business, it didn't mean that wasn't the goal. As long as it could carry on growing, we could grow the skills and the pride of our staff and grow our relationships with our customers, it was fine. You know, if it was going to be a 30, 40, 50 year vision, it really didn't matter enormously what happened in the first 10 as long as it could keep going.
0: So how do you feel when you hear businesses today just talking about growth and profit? Even when we sit and we listen to the Today programme, they come on and their sales are maybe, you know, 1% of their profits down the year before and they're being hauled over the stones by shareholders. What do you feel
1: listening to that? It's difficult because as shareholders, if you invest your pension in a business, you expect to get a return. So you can go shopping and keep your house warm. So it's, it's naive to expect businesses not to want to make a profit. Do you know, that's almost the beginning and end of it. That's the problem. It's not really the problem, it's the opportunity, actually. So they tend to be, for obvious reasons, very short term. And business just is very short term. Not all, not all at all. But a great many a very short term.
0: But some of these are big businesses we talk about because this is actually the hub of this that really does interest me because you've got the huge business, both of your businesses, we're going to get onto it too in a minute, but the fact is, when you know that society starts to change and how we live has start to change and culture starts to change, often the businesses that were created, some of the old businesses, big big retail businesses that were created, you can feel need to shift and pivot or change, especially especially post COVID and especially in the sort of society we're in today, where we're realising that what we buy and how we live has a big effect on our planet and humanity and our well-being. How would you advise, and you can say I don't know if you want the answer, those businesses, would you say to shareholders, listen, bear with me on this because we need to change this and you might not get your you know, results as soon as you think, but the long term I'm going this route. And I'm not hearing that being said at, at all,
1: all, by the way. I don't know. I mean, You can try that. They'll probably just take their money and put it elsewhere. I don't know. Awareness is a good place to start. And looking at so many good examples around the world, there are a great many of businesses which take a 10, 20 year view rather than six months, and businesses which have and continue to develop fantastic relationships with their staff and their customers. It's not impossible. It's not impossible at all. Well, you've proven it's not.
0: You talk about your obsession, which I love, you, you, a few things. You spent your inheritance on a, <laughs> on a posh French baking oven and you're myopic about soy sauce. You spent a year flying back and forth to Korea to get your gyoza dumplings right for itsu. Where does that obsessive detail come from? I mean, do you find peace in the tiny details? Does that make you sleep at night? And no, well I, don't, done? I don't know. Where is it?
1: It's just important, that belief that everything could be done a tiny bit better and give more joy and be more unusual. It's very, very, very hard. I mean, I, I, most of my life is spent dealing with the errors I've made previously on everything. But the pursuit of excellence is a wonderful thing. And when you capture it, and when you really are at a stage where it almost couldn't be better, it's absolutely harmoniously good. It's a wonderful feeling, and definitely one worth pursuing. From a design, price, flavour, everything point of view. When it's right, when it's there, it's beautiful.
0: It is beautiful, isn't it? That's why I talk about beautiful businesses, utterly beautiful. And sometimes it's very difficult to explain to businesses how to do that. I think it does have to come from this instinct that we talk about. And, you know, I remember back... When you started, the engaging stories that you told on packaging. So, if you're waiting even in a queue, which wasn't very long in a prep then, you smiled in your soul when you looked at it. The little funky music, the actual music, actually, how you chose that instead of music. And I don't mean to knock them today, but I went in the other day to one at Waterloo and they were playing, you know, it's a kind of magic by Queen. And I thought this would not have happened in Julian's days it was not the right music. Mm. It was not the right music. And there was something about the music you played that, no, I know, you're making that face, I know, but you can't. Sometimes passing that baton on, which you did with that business, there's something. It's like when again, I go back to when Anita Roddick left the body shop and it was so to L'Oreal and it became the most bland, boring chain, which they're now pulling back in with putting the soul and the essence of what her belief was and her feeling and her instinct and that creativity do you have pop in there today into your i don't prep? know
1: i mean if you feel it's not as good as it was no that, it's not but i, I that, don't think it's bad then at that's thought. partly my fault for not supporting and dealing with things well enough i haven't worked a prep for a decade so i can't really comment well, how
0: can it be your fault then
1: because maybe I didn't do a good enough job in building it properly. I mean, the, the Taj Mahal still looks pretty good.
0: No, but you're not um, there choosing the music today. A,
1: I was in some garden the other day. He's not
0: answering me. You're not there choosing the music today, Julie.
1: No, but had I defined what sort of music is appropriate, maybe it wouldn't have changed. So it is my fault.
0: But I've read that you were involved until you sold your final stake in 2018. And you said, in the end, getting things done the way I wanted them done became harder and harder. I was wasting so much of my energy and emotional energy dealing with a sort of corporate thing.
1: Yeah, I don't remember saying that, but... Sounds like a frustrated fool to me. But listen, there are no regrets at all. I think has still got so many wonderful things about oh, it's it. It's a great
0: business, still.
1: But the fact is, you know, there we are, that what happened happened, you know? So I'm not, it would be quite wrong to grumble about anything.
0: No, I don't think you're grumbling. I just think what I'm trying to get to, and this is the heart of what a beautiful misfit is, I remember, I remember this why I left Harvey Nichols. I remember going yeah. around and showing ideas that I had that were. Maybe a bit left of center. One was I'd just discovered Thomas Heatherwick, who was a great, had just come out of college, and I wanted yeah. him to install this crazy scheme into the windows of Harvey Nicks. And I'd have to go to the board meeting and sell it in. Before, yeah. we just did it instinctively because we were loss making. And now yeah, I was yeah. on the board, I had to, and you had yeah, to back yeah. it up with wine. Yeah. And I just found my soul yeah. just
1: being. No. What you're saying is absolutely true, and a great many of people listening who wonder why their company can't be more long-term thinking and, and more X, Y, and Z. It's, you've got to remember that the people who run that company also report to a board, a board of people who often, perhaps, only care about the finance of the company and its profitability or whatever. I don't know. Running a company and working as an executive in a co- any company is hard. It's not easy. You're balancing. There's so much to deal with. It's extraordinary that someone like you had to suddenly go to the board to get permission to spend X on the windows. I mean, the windows at Harvey Nichols were famous. Famous. I mean, you new know, people used to crowd around them and take pictures of them, and they were famous. And there you are having to justify what actually made the place remarkable. Mm. But that, you know, it just doesn't surprise me. Mm. I am very lucky not to have that problem today with ITSU. I work with an incredibly aligned group of people. We could...
0: But Everyth- you're the visionary. The everything total, w- though,
1: which it doesn't go well with with it is entirely our fault, and we are det- we, you know we are really aligned. I'm very lucky, really really lucky that we don't have that.
0: <laughs> you see, I think that luck comes because you're coming from your place of truth and knowing your sort of. I love this. I often quote that Oprah says your frequency, your energy. You kind of know that inner. That's yours, and it's like it's like going into a great restaurant. You think, oh, this feels like me, you know, or a great shop or someone's home. There's an inner sort of frequency that you connect with, and if you're able to, which is, I try and want hope that people are able to find that and not suppress it in themselves and know that that's your truth, and actually find those places that will allow you to be that, because so many, so many of us, and I did in my younger days. And so many today, and I have, you know, children in their 20s who still will feel that, that they're pushing against a system and therefore they feel less. They feel less. Yeah. And that's why I love the Beautiful Misfits. I want to show there is another way that's not that system.
1: I understand exactly what your mission is. Maybe it is. It's the misfits which sometimes cut through all the crap and say, no, 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 it doesn't have to be like that.
0: It doesn't have to be like that, and that's what I want. I think that this... It can sit alongside, I call it the sort of patriarchal structures that we've lived under, sitting in front of some very tall bloke here. But I find that that's what we've been living under and that we have for hundreds and hundreds of years, that this kind of wonderful, instinctive, not structured, but it can't be assessed, it can't be dated, this needs to come up more into the world. And if we can open that up, in business and the way that we live, I think we have a chance of actually creating a better and more beautiful world. That's very deep. Um, Now, here's interesting, because I I like this. You became Pret's creative director. You didn't put yourself as chairman or CEO. Why was that?
1: I think because um, it was the creative side of the business, which I really loved. And it was the creative side of the business. In other words, the creative solutions to everything whether it be how do you have really proud members of staff how do you have wonderful food at the right price it was all a, it's a creative challenge the managing of what happened last week and what's happening tomorrow it's incredibly important but it wasn't really my skill
0: mm. but it's wonderful because you've always had partners you co-founded prep with sinclair beach and then clive schlee became your ceo at prep and now he works with your Itsu. I mean, I love having a partner, and it took me a while to get to it because there was also that bit of, well, you own the company, so you, you should be this role, you should understand, and you should be the CEO. I'm like, Actually, mm. it's just not what I do well. Yeah. And it's brilliant when you find someone who will do that and fly with you.
1: Exactly. You have to try and marry up the skills that you clearly don't have. Find somebody who has those skills. It's, obviously, it's obvious, really. It's like a marriage, I mean, for goodness sake. It seemed pretty obvious. I mean, there are some people who can do both. It's bloody rare, mm, mm. very rare. Mm. But Sinclair was fundamental in it, getting all that stuff done. Clive um, Clive has skills I don't have. He doesn't work at Itsu full-time, but he's our chairman. In fact, we were the other day. He took us, nine of us who work at Itsu he went for two days and he made us climb a mountain in Austria together. Really exhausting. It took 11 hours. <laughs> but what's interesting about him is, you know, the week before he had had nine homeless people people from Pratt doing the same thing. So I thought to myself, if nine homeless people who he'd flown over at his expense, et cetera, et cetera, can climb that mountain, I'd better do it without grumbling. And of course, you end up spending very valuable time together. But in other words, you've got to admire someone who has that faith in humanity. Just to say, you know, if I can get these nine, some of them had quite, you know, some mental challenges and had gone through terrible personal problems. A pre- has hundreds of people like that it supports. But to spend two days with them in your own home and then go up the mountain, I think that shows real balls. I That's think commitment. That shows
0: beauty and yeah, love.
1: Proper commitment. If
0: that shows love. Should we use yeah. that in business?
1: Yeah, I mean. Clive would hate that word. Take no, your that, balls actually that's out. a I terrible I should not say that but
0: Clive would hate he'd say No, no, balls he wouldn't more. say
1: it's love. He'd say it was essential. He'd say it was fundamental and it was obvious. Yes. And it comes from a place of love. Yeah, that's true. That's wonderful. I love this. You've always had a social element.
0: I find this so interesting because I want to take some of the listeners back. You opened in the late 80s. We're talking when Thatcher was in charge. So it's all people talk about this now. Oh, yes, we train up homes. We give our leftovers. You were right up there in a time where individualism and the me society was at its peak it wasn't an expectation at the time for businesses to engage with social responsibility in any which way, to create a real value-driven business. And we talk, I talk about this a lot, you know, values and value, which I think is what you've put at the heart of both your business. Is this a price and good food that I can bring to people? Yeah. And also I have values and that that, that care at the heart of this. How did you decide to do all that? You know, your leftover sandwiches
1: for the homeless to us, it just seems so obvious. In other words, if, if you work very hard all day to make this food, to throw it in the bin at the end of the day is just so destructive. I mean, it's just so obvious. It's just stupid and devalues everything you've, you've been doing all day. So it didn't cost that much in those days to have to get it to people who needed it. So it just seemed obvious to us for dozens of reasons and then that became much more serious we, we then started buying vans and supplying them to the charities which ran the runs and
0: I used to see them I loved it. I'd walk out of work sometimes yeah. and walk through and you'd see your van everyone yeah yeah and I think we well, rode on them
1: fueled by our customers but do you Ooh. know that in those days a couple of very big supermarkets with untold sales and profits they refused to give their food away in case wait for this, in case a homeless person messed up and got the dates wrong and got food poisoning. So that was their justification for not giving away their vast, vast amounts of, of leftover foods in case they got sued. They think that's pathetic.
0: I think it's utterly, utterly it's pathetic. pathetic, but it goes back to yeah. what we talk about. And you know what would have been at the heart of that, Julian, and you know it, would fear. That would have yeah. been some but middle management But humans are, apparently fear.
1: were... Fear and love, or I think fear. what well, yes. All humans, yeah. Of course. So yeah, someone. No, that, finish
0: that sentence. Well, really I don't are. know
1: what what they say, but fear is one of the major emotions which drives all human decisions. Yes. Which just seems rather gloomy to me, but no, there would have been someone at the high up, at the executive of one of those supermarkets, who would have been in charge of some department, who would have said, no, 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 it's too risky, rather than saying, no, no, we can find a way. Of course, we can find a way.
0: We can find a way to no. everything. There's enough in this world for everybody. Yeah.
1: How can we do well, that? Well, you do it by everybody, all of us in positions of authority, taking small steps forward, taking responsibility, and trying to fight for what's so obviously right rather than ridiculously, stupidly wrong.
0: So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about failure, not much. I'm, I don't think you've brushed up against that too often. But Itsu, 1997 met my daughter last night. I said, quickly, I just had this little lovely evening. It came out, as beautiful hot summer evening. I was in the office and I texted Verity, hey, do you fancy a pint outside a pub? You know yeah, yeah. when London's alive, yeah. isn't it? It's just like and everyone's sort of standing there and she's in so She goes, yeah, Mom, I'll meet you. And then, you know, as she left, because she was going to, to look at a little flat on a bike, she said, I'll just pick up a knit suit. I said, oh, I'm <laughs> meeting Julian tomorrow. And it's, she just says, oh my God, the amount that I, I spend in there. It is an incredible business. But Now you're focused on growing the grocery element of the business. You've got your broth in M&S.
1: Oh, yeah, delicious broth. Yeah, so itsu is 20-, 30-, 40-year vision of challenging the concept of, of making affordable food which is healthy and nutritious. In other words, using brown rice and vegetables and gyoza and broth. And we've got to challenge the omnipotent American brands who just do fast fried food. We've got to. And also less meat. So how I'm do- not a vegetarian, but 38% of what we sell is not meat. I don't think we can carry on eating unbelievably processed Meat and, and, you know, that's unacceptable. But
0: how did you feel uh, about that when the report that um, Dimbleby did on food, which is
1: a very good report, well, food-
0: and all the issues that came up, and Boris Johnson said, well, I'm not going to go forward with those nows because we've got to keep prices down, and effectively... The farming that he was looking at and how we can create regenerative farming, he went right down the food chain. It was a brilliant piece of work. But we went for the short term in politics because we're coming up to an economic crisis. We're in an economic crisis. And so the governments think that cheap food and families, how they can afford it... We know, and the stats looking at that, is causing obesity and real health issues. So how are you bridging that? Because you are an M&S and ITSU is for people of a certain income, would you say?
1: Yeah, but I mean, so the answer to your question is it's not with taxes, it's with education. Yes. It's really very, we don't teach proper nutrition or anything. We don't teach people to cook at school. It's just absurd that they just take for granted that understanding nutrition and food and what we eat should be done at the home. It's completely wrong. It needs urgently to have a role in education. Urgently. And until, must be called until domestic f- science. Yeah, I know. And until until they do that, there's no hope whatsoever. But there's no taxing someone who makes someone a birthday cake is don't I I do, d I don't think tax is actually the answer. I mean taxing tobacco is different, that makes complete sense. But once you start taxing or foods, it rather gets tricky. Much better to do education.
0: Of course it is. But going back to my mother's generation, she bought locally every single day, right? But she didn't work. It was a different yeah. world, five kids, and she cooked every day. So we actually had a very really healthy way of eating. Okay? Yes. yeah, that mother today, who's a working class mother, I came up from a very different background from you, but would be working how quickly, when she gets in the house, do I make a meal for my children? Absolutely. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. OK, if I've got these cheap burgers that I can buy from, you know, the supermarket, how do we compete? How do we shift that? That is that is the big question here, isn't yeah. it? And get society to really understand what good food is, what good is, and at a,
1: a reasonable price. Mm. Well, two ways, I think. Firstly, education, and ed- more education, and more and more education. Okay. And then... I have unbelievable faith in the consumer. I really, really do. It's all cyclical. Um, You know, the opportunity for everybody to have something delivered to their home in five minutes has been really quite recent. That's all happened in the last five years. It's become more and more expensive. Um, I was with three young kids the other day, the early 20s, and they spent the whole weekend cooking. Because of the costs of food is going up and up and up, people are going to have to start cooking a bit more. It will happen. It's bound to happen. But I do still think that the fastest way to this success here is going to be through education. It's taken us 20 years to inform people, for instance, calories. I mean, now back of pack. If you remember, 25 years ago, nothing was on back of pack. Now people can read what's in their food. It's, it just takes so long to do this obvious stuff.
0: It's a bit like the fashion stuff, you know, all this where people say, you know, fashion's democratic and we've got cheap fashion it's so people can afford it. Actually, really? I'm looking at, you know, uh, most kids you see in designer trainers, which are ridiculously expensive. It's all because of the marketing and the stories we've told on what good is. Fashion, do we need to have brand I mean,
1: new? Peer pressure fashion? is never to be underestimated. Well, it's always been that way. But the young kids are, are now renting and buying secondhand clothes more than ever before. They really are. It's, oh, I know. It's unbelievable how quickly this is happening. I know. In my home, both my stepdaughters every week are selling or buying or renting. Yeah,
0: I love it. It's wonderful. I really, really just love one, that. It's so
1: cool. I just want to talk about failure. There must have been stuff.
0: I know the early days of Pret. There must have been times God, where yes. it was. But it's come all, on, tell it's me the times It's all been about way. failure.
1: Everything is about, I think, most people fear failure too much. You've got to embrace failure. There's no such thing as failure. It's just a route to success. It's just bumps along the road is good because from failure you learn to do something better. You learn, learn stuff. We're far too obsessed by failure. I mean, you need to be prepared. You need to have evidence about what you feel or do is going to work before you jump in. So it depends what you mean by failure. But I've never been reckless. I've just embraced failure and that every day I do stuff and half of it doesn't work, so I carry on trying harder. I remember during COVID,
0: though, you said that your grocery product lines became the focus during COVID when the opening of new international stores were called off because you were going to do that. And you yeah. sort of said, oh, COVID's killed our most exciting year ever. Tell me how you felt about that, though. You know, I had a terrible COVID. I hated it. I had the worst three years. Did you? Yeah, but I was going through a divorce. I'd no. sold my home. I had to... Yeah, it was just horrendous. No, I mean, and my for, business were all yeah. retailers and they all stopped doing anything. Of course. And I just was like... It was oh. awful. Did but, you? And, and
1: for a lot of your listeners, COVID has been, and still is in some ways, still devastating. For me personally, you know, the health of, of my family was, was was great. It was fine. We were able to spend more time together. And I was able to focus on developing grocery products and cooking. So I was very worried for a great many of our staff, though. That was all very, very frightening. Being in charge of, a thousand, you know, many hundreds, thousands of people, that was frightening. But in the end, they were so brave and strong. They went through unbelievable hardship too, you know. I mean, for a great many young people locked up in little flats. I, know. I mean, honestly.
0: I remember saying something else about, you know, what offices opening back up, because we opened ours. I was up as soon as we could, although... Mm deeply expensive to keep an office running I think hundreds of thousands and I didn't have you know anybody in there and we also well, all our clients were just going no we're not doing anything stopping any work so it was all this horrendous survival feeling but also thinking I have to be avuncular and kind here but it's very very difficult yeah it was really really difficult but I remember saying that you know speaking we were all doing these Zoom calls and I'd see some of my team in their little bedrooms and they'd say, oh, God, I've got to go into the garden because someone's come into the house and I can't hear. And you're like, this is not even the garden on a balcony. We have to get back. And at the heart of humanity is connection. And the minute we started bringing people back into the office, it was wonderful. And I said, I think, you know, so many businesses are looking at closing offices as a cheap, bloody option to save. And I think, you know, many of the big businesses did that. God, I got trolled on. Did you? Yeah. Like, what does she know about, you know, it's lovely for people working from home. And and actually I was like, yes, of course, it's a balance. I wasn't even saying it was one or the other. But I just think to be living in a small flat and working from your bedroom, that cannot be good. That cannot be good. So, yes, you'd have seen that. What about... Staff, I've heard that it's been really difficult because of Brexit, getting great people in. Have you found that?
1: Yeah, Brexit has... This country, don't forget, in 1987 or in 1988, for the first time ever, we were allowed in this country to employ people from the continent. We were allowed to employ young uh, young people from Spain, and Italy and France. And from that date, everything changed on the food scene of this country. Because prior to that, you couldn't. Yes. Yeah. And for 30 years or whatever it is, the food scene in Great Britain has completely changed because of these people. Now, in the early days, it was a great many of these young kids coming to England for a couple of years, learning to speak English, getting away from their grandparents, and then going back home. And it worked for them. It worked for us. It changed everything for this country for the better. However, the Brexit movement and a great many people who voted for Brexit were frustrated by what was obviously going on. The trouble is now, no one can come. So for the hospitality business and care homes and a great many other industries, we are in terrible trouble. Hospitality particularly, because, you know, especially everyone, you know, the kids who come over from Italy and Spain and France were fabulous in hospitality. They already know how to to serve and to cook. They come from cultures which really revere food. And without them, restaurants are going to become terribly expensive. A great many are going to close down, which is sad for us. I don't know what the solution is. I don't have the solution. But um, it's definitely, being in that industry, it's going to be terribly, terribly troublesome for all of us and our customers and everyone listening here. Because soon, you know, prices will continue to go up and up and up and up and up and up until the places won't work anymore. It's sad.
0: You don't say you don't know what to do. And one of the things I was thinking of listening to you there is you talk about education, education. Why is it that we have culturally... You know, the hospitality business not seen as a career. The same with the retail business, you know, unless you're at the top management, get yourself there. Can we redefine? That is a way that we can... Especially, you're right, our food industry became amazing. I think London at one time was seen as one of the greatest cities yeah. in the world for I the
1: food. Yeah.
0: I know, That just would well, not... Well, that was
1: driven by these people.
0: But can we not recreate through the people that we have?
1: It's a good question and one which has been posed many, many, many times. Do we not... In England, we perhaps, arguably we just don't have a culture of revering food. Don't know why not. We haven't, unlike let's say Italy or or Spain and France and, and, and other countries. I do they, think they, it's coming they...
0: through. Interestingly, I mean, I, I do have foodie kids, but I do see a lot, a lot. Um, I go out to restaurants now, so I think what they're they're sitting over there, twenty somethings. Mm. How are they affording this? And it's actually where they're choosing to put their money. Some of them on, yeah, food. on food, which is great, which is great, rather great. than more stuff.
1: Yeah. That's good, isn't um, it?
0: And really, and I'm sure people listen and go, well, that's all right, the p- kids you know. Now, I've asked them, and some are on low salaries, yeah, yeah. but it's where they want to put sure. their money because it gives them joy.
1: Yeah, well, those same people are going to have to start cooking at home more because going out is going to become too expensive, sadly. Well, that's what we have to teach. Um, just going to ask you on your family, how are they all? You have a, They're good. Do you have children? How many children? No, have we have you? seven, Brooke and I. <laughs> she has four, I have three. And I'm lucky, because two of mine work with me, which is the ultimate joy. Yeah. There's nothing greater than that. And they choose to, and they're brilliant. So that's a real privilege, actually.
0: How old's your youngest?
1: My youngest is, like, 26. Oh, really? Yeah. My oldest is 33, 4. I always take a few years off their age, which is a terrible habit.
0: Yeah, but that's because you want to take a few years off your age Probably. Don't you, <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, no, so I'm very lucky. And and my four stepchildren are, in, are also remarkable. I'm you, very lucky. Do like you
0: look that. at them? Because I, I sometimes, you know, when you lost your mother at seven, and I, I know you don't talk and you don't have to talk about this and you can say no, but that's just an incredible painful loss. Do you look at them and just ever look back at your little self, little Julian at seven? No, no,
1: I, I, I promise you I don't. I really honestly don't. And also don't forget a great many people suffer what I went through, and worse, frankly.
0: Do you know what? Can I so, stop you on that? Because that's you evading it, I think, to an extent. I'm going to stop you slightly on that, because mm-hmm. when I was talking to Lem say who had a terrible... I mean, like, he was put into care homes. It's an extraordinary story. And I said to him, your pain was greater than mine, you know, because I, I lost my parents young, but yours was great. He said, your pain is 100% whatever way. You can't compare yeah. it to someone else. And I suppose... Exactly. Yeah. Do you remember sure. that? I'm just looking back. Seven-year-old boy losing his mother to suicide is so fundamental. Is there no way that you look at that or do you just close it down? No, I promise you I don't. I mean, okay. it,
1: it wasn't great. But, but at the same time, a great many people are living in, let's say, abusive relationships. But, you know, pain is everywhere. But then so is joy and hope. And I don't think my life has in any way been defined by pain at all. It's driven by hope. It really is. It's driven by hope. And all of us who in any way have suffered or are suffering need to remember that, that tomorrow is another day. There are things we can do. We can move through, we can move on. And we have to, and we should have that, find that belief and that confidence because we can. That's very beautiful. It's true, though. But it is true. It's so true. I see suffering all around me. You just have to help people have the confidence and the resolve to move, to move through it.
0: And with that sort of energy of confidence and moving through it and finding hope and finding joy, somehow you put that out into the universe and that creates the better world that we're all in. Tiny, having.
1: tiny bit, yeah.
0: Well, those tiny, tiny bits all add up, don't they? Yeah, you no, no make
1: tiny, tiny little droplets, but they do add up. And you definitely, the mission of really a delicious, affordable food, which is nutritious, gives people a good reason to get up and come to work. We're very lucky, all of us, to, to have that. And at the same time, to kind of have the harmony where we treat each other and the people we we try to really well for the long term. It doesn't work every day, but when it's good, it's great. So just think long term. Julia
0: Metcalf, thank you for joining me today. A wonderful, beautiful
1: misfit. Ah. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening, and I leave you with this don't you dare having listened to this podcast and be inspired think that the care of this world is always someone else's job it's not it's yours every one of your actions counts make it happen